0: John Coltrane, and uh, a moment's notice, my guest uh, today is Greg Carmichael, the co-founder of Acoustic Alchemy. When you first got, we talked, we were talking about the very first recording in Nashville, or rather, uh, the very first recording um, for a Nashville company. But you actually made the the album in Germany. It was called Red Dust and Spanish Lace. Yeah. Um, why Germany?
1: That was because of John Parsons. Um, <clears throat> Nick was was. Um quite insistent that uh you know the guy to produce this would be john parsons because he'd he nick went to the leeds college of music where he did um jazz guitar and he met and john parsons was doing it at the same time and john parsons obviously impressed nick i can i can see why um and john parsons at that time was living in bonn in cologne which is, is which is near where the studio is the studio is actually in bonn um so rather than rather than do uh, you know record in, in in england or in london which would have made sense because because we both lived there um he, he thought and and do it with someone an unknown someone or someone that we didn't know if they would you know get into the music like the music or know anything about guitars we, we went to uh we did it in, in, in germany which is where john parsons was living and he, he produced it
0: the I mean that tradition has continued almost throughout the 25 years of uh, acoustic Alchemy's existence because you've, uh, I think with I think without exception, you've done virtually all of your albums at Hansa House Studios in in Bonn with Klaus Genwitt.
1: That's right. Yeah, I, I think.
0: I mean, you obviously like the guy.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, he no, no, because Klaus, um, well, things about Klaus is he's, he's a perfectionist. He's absolutely totally dedicated. he gives you. It'll give you all of his time, you know, nothing's ever a problem. And he treats it as if it's his own, which is quite an amazing thing. You know, you never feel like you're under pressure. He's, he's helped me immensely with um, recording the guitar. There are times when you know, I've felt like given up because I just can't get it right, or I can't do it. the solos rubbish and, and he's kind of helped me through and And it's a beautiful studio and he's so so sincere you know about the whole thing so once you've once you've kind of worked with him you know you think well we'll do the second one with him and and so and so it's carried on and on
0: when the first album came out red dust and spanish lace um although unknown to english people where where you were born um, the americans suddenly started to take uh, new age quite seriously and I think a, a station in, in Los Angeles called The Wave initially picked up on this particular album and, and played lots of tracks from it. And it spread gradually across the country because I think at the time the kind of new age stations, which later became Smooth Jazz, um, suddenly had something that they could they found that they, they liked and wanted to play. And that offered you an opportunity to um, go and work there the first time and i think dallas was the first place you went to
1: yeah that's right yeah um dallas the arcadia theater um our very first gig on american soil i remember it really well and the thing that got me the most was that you know we'd we'd start playing ricochet and they started clapping because because they knew it. you know they knew this track they they. They heard it on the radio and they liked it. And I think it was the
0: Oasis in Dallas, wasn't it? That played the
1: Oasis radio station. Yeah, mm. and and so this was very exciting because you know never before a- anything that we performed in England or written you know w- would have been recognised, and it so was just great that, that they you know to, to have that that kind of reception.
0: And that that opportunity to tour lasted an awful long time. I mean, uh, the band was constantly going back and forward to America was it kind of strange that you didn't do gigs in England I mean did your family actually think that you might be kidding when you said you played in a band
1: <laughs> um no I mean it was it was quite tough I i you know all my my children uh, I mean my, my eldest was born in 83 um you have three daughters three daughters yeah so um, then my middle one, born in '85, was when I met Nick and Penny, born in '87. So, as they were growing up, I was away an awful lot. You know, I was I was away a lot. But on on the other but on the other hand, you know, when I was back, I was I was around uh, to be able to. Uh, I mean, be involved.
0: The, the strange thing actually is that before England opened up a little bit. Um, you started to go out to the Far East and places like that so you know Japan and Korea and yeah I Philippines mean we, there
1: were some years where we were just incredibly busy and that really I suppose was the real kind of you know peak of of, uh, of um, what we were doing in terms of the amount we were touring and I you know I think that, that coincided with uh, an album called Against the Grain and we were just out on the road all, all the time yeah. I mean, there was one year we were out pretty much an awful lot of it, you know, Um, but, you know, you, 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 you you take those, you, you, at that age, you you take that, you know, because I, I, I thought that it would pay off and, and it would secure me, you know, financially and from all, from all that was able to buy my house and, you know, so, yeah, but obviously, you know, you, you have to have the support from, from my wife you know, because she, she was sort of left, al- left on her own a lot of the time.
0: We'll take another track now. This one's uh, by an English performer with an American name, Elvis Costello. Um, what attracted you to this?
1: Yeah, that that came out in the 80s, didn't it? Um, it came out, I guess, we're talking, what, early 80s? 81, 82? Um, mu- music had gone through... It, punk It happened, and... I remember distinctly I've got of, of myself, a keyboard player called Terry Dizzling, um, uh, this violinist chap, we were in Terry's band called Blitzfish, and I remember Terry, no, no, the violinist brought in, he said, look what I've just got, I've got this single, it's by uh, the Sex Pistols, it's called God Save the Queen, and he put it on, and we went, ah, <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is that all about you know just sound like a noise when I listen to it now actually I think it's a bloody great track um so you had this sort of whole punk thing which I couldn't really you know latch onto it wasn't it wasn't where my head was at at all but then you you people like Elvis Costello and I really like this track I think it's very it was very well extremely well written great melody great lyrics and and that kind of for me Kind of stood out. You
0: know. The acceptable face of punk. <laughs> Elvis Costello, here we go. Oliver's Army. That was Oliver's Army by the fantastic Elvis Costello. Um, who's actually whose wife recorded for the record label that you went to from our, MCA? MCA um, uh, kind of decided not to have a jazz label. And they sold their interest to a company in New York called GRP. Um, Do you remember much about working for GRP?
1: Yeah, it was very exciting. Working for GRP felt proper. It felt like it was a proper record label. They had proper budgets, they had proper art departments, proper PR people. Everything about it was what you would expect from a record company. When you went to see them, they got your limousine. It was just. Absolutely fantastic, you know. The, the expenses, you know, take out to beautiful meals. It, it everything about it was uh, made you feel like you were some kind of, you know, stock Star. stock, <laughs> Yeah.
0: Um, throughout Acoustic alchemy's career, they've managed to win virtually every award going. In you know, best acoustic band, best this, best that. Um, probably I think about two hundred different uh, awards throughout the years. But I guess the one that you probably cherish the most is, is the fact that the band has been nominated for a Grammy on three occasions. What was that like to found, find that you'd been nominated?
1: Wonderful, one of those things that you know you had to go to. Um, what was it like? Rubbing shoulders with, with these amazing other stars, you know, Diana Ross, I mean, they're all you suddenly you were found yourself in amongst you know the the people that you'd and stars and musicians that you'd perhaps idolised for for years and years and years as, as a kid and um, yeah it was it was um a, a great event you know you had to make sure that you had you you know got dressed to the nines because everyone else was you know and um the the strange thing about those those events is that when you're when actually your your nomination comes up, your category comes up. And, and they say, you know, sounds and I was nominated, and acoustic alchemy, and the winner is, and they open the envelope, and they say someone else's name. And, and then before you know it, they've moved on. And, and you're kind of slightly stunned, you, you want to feel like, you sure you got that right? Do You want to check that? You know? <laughs> um, but you know, it was, it was a, a great thing. I'd, I'd love i'd love to get one one day i'm not sure that's ever going to happen but there you go
0: well let's hope so anyway um i guess the the the, the next few years was uh, a mixture as we said of touring both in america and around the world and then um very sad thing happened of course that people will know is that nick got ill um and was diagnosed with having pancreatic cancer um what were your feelings at that stage I mean, obviously you felt something towards Nick. Did you feel, what did you feel about it in terms of acoustic alchemy?
1: Well, that that um, happened after that year that we'd spent out on the road, Far East. I mean, done so much touring, recording records. Uh, it was a very, very, it was very strange. Um, but, you know, Nick, obviously... And we and everyone else obviously thought he he was going to beat this thing. You know, it was just it was it was a kind of temporary interruption. Because um,
0: you were recording an album at the time.
1: Yeah, yeah. We'd um, positive thinking. So we had to sort of, sort of slightly change things. I mean, uh, I was Nick was lived uh, had moved out of London. He still kept his flat in London, um, but he actually was residing um near Bath um you know in the west country um but he would have to come up to London because all the hospitals were there you know for treatment and so when he did he'd he'd come up for a couple of days before and we we were writing this stuff for this um next record which became positive thinking and then he'd go in for his treatment and that would just wipe him out completely um and it was a you know that's how we kind of carried on for that um for that year really very uh, terrible. I mean, sometimes he he was really well, and other times he was white.
0: And so Nick eventually died. And um, you were left in in a situation where, you know, what was the future? I mean, how did you view it at that stage? And and how did you think about uh, what did you think about with the album and
1: that? Well, point? the thing is that when these things happen, you don't really have time to think, do you? You don't really <clears throat> think about. You can't. You're not. Things just happen, and you react to them, and and you know, you kind of go along <clears throat> with what happens. Because when, di- when he died, um, when he died, we were actually because um, Miles was was also there. We we were working on on this record, positive thinking, and and he died before we even. Started recording it. We we gone to we'd kind of gone to the trouble of hiring this this um, manor house near where he lived in Bath, to, and set up a um, you know a recording studio, a portable recording studio, um, and with the idea that he could come in to play some guitar for an hour or so when he was feeling quite good. Then he could. It wasn't so far for him to have to go to go back home, but sadly he died before he even had a chance to put down uh, any guitar. Um,
0: and so you've got John Parsons. So yeah, the
1: obvious choice was John Parsons because um, to, to play that, which which he did. But things just happened, don't they? You know, John Parsons came in, did that, and. You feel like you had to finish the record. One thing led to another. You, you know, you want you, th- you think it's important to tour it because, you know, that's what Nick would have wanted and so we kind of um, we kind of kept going.
0: Uh, so you went to, uh, you know, after Nick's death, you went to America with this album and went on tour with, with John Parsons playing Nick's parts. Yeah. Yeah. And how did that go?
1: And Miles playing the uh, yeah. electric guitar. I was, personally, I was incredibly nervous because Nick was um, very much a presence, you know, on stage. I mean, he was kind of the, the guy who did most of the, the talking and he because he'd been to drama school that was his thing he was good at that he was very very good at that and so i thought my, you know how are we going to how are we going to do this without him um and i guess the i guess that the fans knew that they must you know they you know people are not stupid they they know what's they know, know what people can do and what they can't do um but they i think that they, they they just wanted the band to keep going because they liked the music so much and and it was getting that kind of feedback and that support that, you know, ma- made us think that it was worthwhile. But having said that, you know, I mean, well, the, the other thing that really kept it going was Miles because, you know, we started um, the, 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 the next record, Beautiful Game. Just but...
0: before you do that, let's, let's take another track and okay. we'll discuss this. Uh, this one's by Pat Metheny. Um, a favourite? A favourite...
1: Favorite... Artist. A favourite artist. Oh, just an immense guitarist. In fact, you see, I actually was introduced to Pat Metheny by, funny enough, by um, Dave Pomeroy. Um, Dave Pomeroy was the American bass player who also introduced us to, because he's American living in Nashville, also introduced us to uh, the MCA, Tony Brown. He, he was the, the guy who picked Nick and I up from the airport and said, you, you know, you take this to Tony Brown. But because Dave had spent a year in England, he, he lived with me for, for about a year. Um, and he he had this record and we're talking about what 1977 78 had this record but well, it must have been one of that very early pat martini record and he said check this guy out he's really really good played it and i i, th- I thought it sounded really good didn't quite i my head was somewhere else uh, didn't i didn't think it was amazing but i thought he was a great guitarist and then, then subsequently over, over the years i've grown to absolutely love him and this this particular track i for me, gets me every time. I just think it's just a wonderful track. It's a long track, but it's just got an amazing build, and I, I love it. It's from a from an album uh, called uh, Off Ramp, and it's called Are, Are You Going With Me?
0: Let's listen to it. Are You Going With Me by Pat Metheny. Um, you're listening to Radio Alchemy with uh, Greg Carmichael. <clears throat> we talked a little little bit about miles the the strange thing is that that i guess most people most fans most people on the road um think of miles gilderdale as being somebody who came in to replace um nick when he died but in fact that wasn't the case he actually was in the band before uh, quite a while before yeah nick. he was yeah. yeah
1: i mean also i think most people along the road now think because the band's been going so long probably have no you know yeah. you know there's lots of new fans of don't know about the past. Don't, band, don't know about the past no, at all. No, no, I mean they assume no, that mean, Miles, Miles, Miles and you always are. Been there, you know, yeah. acoustic
0: album, yeah. yeah. But Miles My, came in because I think the band decided that instead of having a keyboard, they would try it a little differently and have an electric guitar that played colors and this kind of thing, uh, behind the two acoustics with a bass player and a drummer, and Miles um, got the got the the gig, and came along and after Nick died and we thought about maybe John Parsons doing, asking him, but actually uh, in the end, you know, that didn't really work. And Miles unbelievably kind of put his electric guitar down and and learned to play an acoustic guitar. Which yeah, I mean, is, it's, quite
1: a, it's yeah. quite a leap from an electric guitar to a steel string acoustic guitar, as it is just as much a leap from a nylon string to a steel string or, you know, vice versa. There's, um, They've completely different instruments and, and require completely different approaches and techniques, etc. Um, and I always, when I first met Miles, I always liked him. I thought it was hmm. really.
0: Did you? Did you? Obviously, you had to sit down at some stage and write some tunes together. Yeah. Um, particularly from memory, I think things like "Angel of the South" and, and <coughs> I think that was the first That's tune. the first one we we, we did. did.
1: I mean, it's always hard actually when you've because writing with someone is you know is quite an intimate how, how thing, really. I mean,
0: stylistically how different he, is he to nick
1: stylistically hmm. um well nick kind of came from the folk school i mean his his um his acoustic playing was kind of based on you know the bouyants i mean that that whole kind of folk the steel string picking john martin that that thing uh miles didn't Come from that he, he he was playing you know the electric guitar. I mean i I don't know very much about Miles's past. I know that he he had a band called Zoot and the Roots, and um, but he was playing playing electric. So he approached the you know still string acoustic guitar from, from a, a sort of a different school. You know. um, but
0: but in terms of writing, did you find it easier harder to to do it?
1: No, not none of those really. I mean, it was just different, you know. Um, but like I said, like I said, it was a- it's actually quite hard to change your writing partner, because you know, I got I got very used to the way Nick, Nick worked in him. the Same with me. So to have someone else around with because you know, it's writing is can be quite arduous. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're with someone. And when it's going well, it's great. And when it's not, you know, but you can't just say, All right, walk away or
0: So at, at that stage, you know, you, you you almost had to start again because GRP um, decided not to pick up the option. They didn't yeah, on, after on positive thinking. I mean yeah.
1: it, it was kind of a bit of a strange one really because, you know, positive thinking was the last GRP record. That that was when Nick died. It was almost like starting, starting again, again. Yeah. 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 yeah,
0: And you went to this little record label, boutique label, um, called Higher Octave. Uh, who were based right in uh, in Santa Monica, or just up the coast there. Um, quite an interesting label. I had a couple of artists who'd sold millions of records, etc. And the great thing, I guess, for you, being a, a football fan, being an Arsenal fan, was that when it came to naming the album, uh, you called it "Beautiful Game," and they gave you the fantastic opportunity to go to Wembley Stadium, um, which was about to be knocked down. Wembley Stadium, for those who don't know, it was the kind of national home of soccer in England. And the stadium was knocked down for a brand new stadium. But we, um, as Acoustic Alchemy, we went along and uh, essentially was was there just before... Yeah, it, just it, before it,
1: the bulldozers came in. Yes. <laughs> exactly. We what sat, was that like? Oh, it was amazing. Sat in the seats, um, you know, weren't allowed to go on the turf. I think they had one more game to play. I think they, they were scheduled for a game that weekend before, literally before they pulled the whole thing down. And uh, my football table features on in the cover as well. We were playing table football um, right next to the pitch. Now, that was fantastic. It was, it was quite interesting going from, uh, you know, from GRP to higher octave, a very different sort of thing. You know, GRP being, like I say, the sort of, big spending record company nothing was you know a problem um and so this was a new a new era higher octave it was a much tighter budget you know and it wasn't you know they they wouldn't be sending out no limousines to come and get you
0: well they did let you go to Wembley which wasn't too bad (laughs) yeah (laughs) um and over the the next kind of 10 year period um apart from another grammy nomination um you also um changed record companies because emi who owned um, uh, higher octave kind of shut down their various divisions and you went to narada in, in milwaukee then eventually to blue note in new york
1: there were also the emi yeah. yeah they're
0: all emi companies that you just kind of moved along but yeah. by this time you had a kind of a steady band having gone through you know lots of different people to play in acoustic alchemy all of them very good musicians uh for the last several years you've had a band that's been quite steady featuring the granger brothers yeah um how did you meet them
1: um well back greg first uh, he was introduced to us um by frank frank felix bass player because he'd worked with him i think in lonnie liston smith and uh yeah we were looking for another drummer and uh, Frank recommended Greg. Greg's still there. Great, great guy.
0: And his brother now plays f- on. And the- latterly, yeah. his brother, yes. joint, yeah,
1: Gary, who's also an amazing bass player. Yeah.
0: Both of them come from Baltimore, and all of them have this fantastic kind of background. Yeah, I mean, they've
1: done all sorts of people. things. Yeah.
0: And we also use uh, a guy called Julian Crampton, who's uh, another wonderful bass player. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and he comes from London, and. Uh, yeah. um, so th- that's the forms of nucleus, and also you have a keyboard player, Fred White. Fred who's White, been there yeah. a long time.
1: Yeah, who was um he was introduced introduced to us by um our manager Stuart Coxhead, because I think Stuart was teaching at um in Leeds. I I'm not sure if he was teaching at the uh, Leeds College of Music. Or, I th- I think he was. Anyway, he's taking a class, and Fred was one of his students. And when we were looking for a keyboard player, he said, you know, check out Fred. And so I I came up. Um two leads to where Fred lived I mean Fred was a young lad then he was only what twenty 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 one and but immensely talented and um good good writer as well he you know so so he contributed to the writing as well
0: do you think that um it helps when you're touring to have a settled band in other words people that you get on with and know and know uh, both on and off the stage.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Oh, for sure. I mean,
0: do you see it as a kind of an adventure, or
1: do you mean the touring is? Yeah. It, um, well, it's always nice. I suppose I'm not. It's not quite as romantic as it used perhaps used to be. Um, uh, but it's still, it's still interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I, I suppose I, I suppose you're asking me because i mean don't forget you know like i said uh, in the heyday from GRP, you know all the sort of the extras that you would that you used to get with touring are, are not there now you know so it's um it, it's a little more leaner but, challenging. but, but that but challenging yeah but i'm sure that's that, that applies to to a lot of people you know i mean you know we're not the young new band that we were 25 years ago.
0: But you're still touring, you're still making records. Um, what what of the future? I mean, how do you see Acoustic Alchemy for the next five years or so?
1: To be honest with you, um, I don't really think about the future, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really... Th- I don't think about the future. Too much. What Have you ever
0: thought about the future?
1: Yeah. I mean, I suppose i suppose when you know when you're mid-career i guess or at the beginning of your career you're always thinking oh what's coming next now i'm just pretty happy so <laughs> i'm not i don't really to be honest i don't really think that far ahead
0: you still get the same i mean i know that as you said things are different and obviously money's not as as uh, available and that uh, you know things are a little tighter because they are for everybody do you still get the same thrill on stage playing for a, a, an audience, particularly in the States? And, and and now that England's opened up a little bit in England as well, um, do you still get that same thrill every when you do it? Or, or, or has that gone a little bit?
1: No, no, I still really like play. I mean, I like playing and and I like uh, performing. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a great feeling when you when you play a track and it's, gone really well you know you play you feel like we've played that very very well and Mm -hmm.
0: um so it's a combination of of how well you think the band has played it and your part as well as the adulation of the audience
1: yeah to be honest i've never been you know the adulation of the audience is is great i mean i don't really see it as adulation i see it as more that them being part of the experience of what we're doing i don't really i'm not i don't need to get up on stage and have people scream for me to to feel good about things you know um, but
0: i mean you've always in 25 years always after the show gone out and yeah you talk to people and sign stuff yeah but it's not everyone. about me it's no a, no, no yeah no. it's
1: about um what we've just done what the band has done and, and it's you know it's the whole thing it's it's the whole shared experience and we're that that if you like is the experience and we're all part of that experience you know and if it goes well brilliant you know i mean i know i love it great it makes me feel good
0: very good well greg thank you very much for for uh, talking to us today um can i just ask you what this the uh, last track is uh, it's by coldplay i believe
1: yeah it's funny because when you reach a certain age of which i've reached and, and you know suddenly music the music in the media is not but not for you it's not about you nothing to do with you. It's it's a young person's music. Um, you try and keep up, you know people say, well, what are you listen to these days. And you think, Oh my god, I better think about what I've been listening to. Um and and but and sometimes, you know, something you've heard catches you. And I think Coldplay, a bit like the Beatles, you know, they appealed to to they appeal to my daughters, they appeal to they a big student, you know, thing. They But they also appeal to people, you know, my generation, because you you will, you will find when you go, when you go into a record shop, you know, that someone looking through the Coldplay might not necessarily be 18, they could be 40, 50. And uh, I I like Coldplay a lot. I I think they've written some great songs. And it's one of the, one of the few bands, I think, that uh, has, has kind of made me feel that I'm still a little bit in touch (laughs) and uh, this is uh, again like the beatles very hard to pick on one particular track but i I like this this track it's called the hardest part thank you cut